Well, good morning. Glad to see you all here. I appreciate the, uh, the theme that runs through Psalm 111, that thread of redemption. And we're going to trace one of those threads this morning. So if you have a copy of Scripture, open up to the story of Ruth. Turn to your Old Testament. Find the story of Ruth. Pastor out of town, it's a privilege to open up the Scriptures, worship over them with you. Um, you know, having your pastor also be one of your professors is interesting. Um, I say that to say, if I say anything amiss this morning, you can bypass me, go right to the source, take it up with him. So I absolve myself of that, and I uh, appreciate him. Open up to Ruth. Well, one of the ways that you know for sure that the holiday season is upon us is the fierce onslaught of the Hallmark genre. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The presence of Hallmark points to the anticipation of the seasons of Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's to follow, and it's hard to miss. I don't know what the feelings of Hallmark are in this room. No doubt they are mixed uh, between married couples, perhaps. I don't know. If you don't know what Hallmark stories are, they are essentially heartwarming, incredibly positive, incredibly cheesy stories that <laughs> they tell the stories over crackling fireplaces, cherry mahogany mantles, like from a Thomas Kincaid painting. They set the scene in beautiful winter portraits in like Vancouver or coastal Maine. These are the stories. And you're looking at the characters thinking they should be way too cold, but they're never in those movies or in those novels. They're always just fine. One of the things about Hallmark stories, whether in book or movie or channel or whatever, is you can kind of predict the plot about 90 seconds into that movie or into that book, can't you? Well, the genre has a massive consumer base, believe it or not, men. 70 million, uh, dollar, or sorry, sorry, 70 million viewers per year, uh, which is incredible when compared to things like the Super Bowl. That has about 100 million viewers. So Hallmark is right in that ballpark. Hallmark cards alone uh, receive an annual revenue of over $4 billion, with a B, dollars per Christmas season. They reach over 100 co- countries. So that's astounding. That's very wide. Why do we have such a desire? Why do we resonate with stories like Hallmark? Well, we as human beings, we crave stories. We crave redemption and resolution, even if it comes in a little cheesy package. Okay? Here's what a critic said about the Hallmark genre. He said, the lack of reality at all levels, from plot to production, um, signals that these stories are meant to be escapism forms of entertainment. This enables us to suspend disbelief. In other words, we can set our preconceived notions aside and just enjoy what we know is going to come true. And there's no doubt about it. It will come true. Well, we each have our own stories this morning, don't we? Stories where we are each our own protagonists. History is the story. It's God's story. It's truly his story. And we can trace some of that story through the Old Testament, through the various narratives that are written there. Did you know that 25% of your Bible is historical narrative? About a quarter is historical narrative. This is one of the ways that God communicates who he is to his people, is through story, because stories resonate with us, dedicated to historical narrative. God is a wise and good God. He's a greater storyteller than any holiday author, screenwriter, greater than any figures through history. I like what uh, Dr. Leighton Talbert over at the seminary says, no one is a more skilled narrator than God. I hope you agree with that. He's a greater story creator in our lives than you or I can be. Let's see what the story of Ruth has to say about God, not only as a story giver, a creator, but also as a sovereign Lord who rules time, who rules people. 
Here's how we're going to approach Ruth, all right? I'm not necessarily going to overview the entire content of the book. What we're going to do is I'm going to give you several themes that, that pop up intentionally through the book. These themes will hopefully help you guide you as you study the book. And if, if you want to think of them like tools, be my guest. Take these tools, put them in your tool belt, go back home and study Ruth looking at them through these lenses, okay? There's several key elements that make up the story of Ruth. The first element, the first theme we want to talk about is that of conflict. So turn, if you would, you probably turn to Ruth. I want you to look across the page to the book of Judges and the very last two verses of Judges, all right? I know I had you open up to Ruth. We're going to read the last two verses of Judges right before it. Verse 24 and 25. It says, The sons of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And each one of them went out from there to his inheritance. And here's the key element. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As you can easily tell, the immediate context of Ruth is one of social, political, national upheaval. Okay, And many early scholars actually think that Ruth was connected to the book of Judges back when it was in the Hebrew canon. In fact, there are several copies of the Hebrew scripture that literally connect Ruth to Judges. It's called Judges Ruth because they are connected so, so closely. One of those reasons is because the book of Judges just ends so abruptly. Scholars think, you know, the book can't just end that way. It must be leading into the story of Ruth. So we come across the story of Ruth during a time of conflict. That is our first theme. God orchestrates much of his purposes in and through conflict in history and in our lives. Like I said, this immediate setting is one of national and spiritual conflict. There's a lot going on. The key phrase there in in verse 25 of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if you know anything about Bible history, you know that Joshua is right before Judges, and Joshua had done the work of mostly defeating the Canaanite tribes that lived in the land of Canaan, or Israel, as we know it now. However, the work was not quite finished. You come to the end of the book of Joshua, and his call for for the 12 tribes is to finish the job that he started. Their job was to to finish out occupying their designated area throughout the country of Israel and to fully exterminate the foreigners that were there. Not because they were foreigners, but because they had a foreign god, foreign idols. That was the children of Israel's task through the book of Judges. What's sad, but what shouldn't surprise us probably, is that early on in the book of Judges, we read of a twist in the story. Judges chapter 2, verse 10 And Judges chapter 2, verse 17, point out, sadly, how quickly that the nation of Israel began to forsake their God and literally began to acclimate to the foreign idols that were in Israel at the time. It took one generation, 2.17 tells us, and pretty soon they had turned their backs on God and they were worshiping foreign gods. This was clear disobedience of God's original commands. So Joshua, via Moses, Moses and Joshua, they'd given the people a task to to accomplish. And at the center of that task was to preserve the pure worship of Yahweh. Okay, so that's what we're protecting, and we need to, you know, go out through the land and exterminate uh, those spiritual thorns in our side. It didn't take long, and the children of Israel were doing the exact opposite. They were beginning to take ideas and gods from the foreigners in the land, and they were taking it upon themselves to worship Baal and other gods like that. I want you to listen to some of the key themes that run through Judges. We're still setting the stage for conflict, right? Five times in Judges, 
uh, the writer refers to their forsaking the Lord. He calls the rebellion an act of disobedience. The Israelites themselves said, we have sinned at certain points. These people forgot and remembered not the Lord their God, but it never lasted for more than a generation. And here's another key phrase in, in, in Judges. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. 2.11.3.7.3.12.4.1.6.1.10.6.3.13.1. It's all through the book of Judges. It couldn't be clearer. The author is telling us there's unfaithfulness in Israel. But we're going to see a story of faithfulness in contrast to that. So the second area of conflict is not just social, but we come to the area of rebellion um, and disobedience. This is the conflict of divine punishment. Okay, so let's read Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, if you have your copy. Let's read this. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, uh, Epaphrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. We might easily pass this over in verse number one, the idea of a famine. However, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, if you were to go back to the Mosaic Code, tell us that famine, that agricultural struggle, would be a result of God's punishment on Israel. So this wasn't just mere happenstance. This was God, in keeping with his covenant, punishing his people who were unfaithful. This famine came as a result of God's chastisement. That's the second area of conflict. God is punishing, he's correcting his people. What's interesting is if you go to Judges chapter 2, verse 1, I know we're just overviewing here, but if you go there, God again reiterates his promise that he will not break his covenant with his people. Part of his covenant is correcting them when they sin, and hence we have this famine. Uh, the agricultural success or failure of the land was the response of God to the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of the Israelites. My great-grandfather was a farmer um, right on the Mississippi River. So he was right in the corner of Iowa, Missouri, and Illinois. And he was, like most farmers, he was a little pessimistic at times. I'd say, how are the crops looking, Grandpa? And he would always give the same answer. He'd say, we have about three good years out of ten. So he'd say, and that's just how it was. When in reality, he did fine just every year. I don't know, that was just the farmer's response. You have to downplay it, I guess. I don't understand that. However, in, in the land of Israel at this time, famine, struggle, all this kind of thing was not happenstance. This came by way of the Lord. Well, this leads us to our third conflict. It's all building. Let's focus in on Naomi. We're going to talk about personal conflict. How does she respond to the surrounding noise and tension around her? I think that this book, the book of Ruth, is really Naomi's story. We could call it Naomi. We call it Ruth. I think we could call it Naomi. If you look at the beginning couple verses, if, it, if this were a movie, the camera would be panning in on Naomi as she's walking along. And when you get to the end of chapter 4, at the bookend, again, the focus is on Naomi and what she's doing. This is Naomi's story. Let's read verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1. This is Naomi talking. Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I had hope, I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons. 
Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Later, Naomi is going to say, the, the hand of the Lord has dealt bitterly with me, is what she says. She was responding to this. Now, there's a question among the commentators whether or not Naomi was responding in a resentful way to God. Some of you may think she is. I tend to think she's not. I think what she's saying is like what Job says in Job 121. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Notice it doesn't say Naomi was bitter. It says that God dealt bitterly with her. Why do I think that Naomi was not bitter in and of herself? Well, for, for the first point, she recognizes God's own hand in her life. She recognizes that this is of the one true God. Secondly, her testimony actually persuades Ruth to join her in following Yahweh. A bitter person is not a good testimony. And, and Naomi, as she's responding to these trials, actually convinces Ruth to join her in following the Lord and returning to Bethlehem. It's a 50-mile trip. And thirdly, Naomi does return to Israel. So she eventually turns on the gods of Moab, where she was sojourning with her husband. She comes back to Israel. Now, that, that's just my interpretation. It could be wrong, but I think Naomi is responding well to this conflict. So we have conflict brewing through the whole story. Let's bring this home to us. How do we have conflict today? This is still under the first point. Well, does God still chasten his people today in order to purge them from sin? Hebrews 12, 6, Job 5, 17. Discipline comes from a loving father who wants to correct us, who wants to keep us close to him. It comes from a God who desires our very best in Christ. We, not, we may not experience conflict like the Israelites did through famine, but we can experience God's chastisement in other ways, keeping us on the path, rebuking us, pulling us back to true faithful living. This is a tool in the hand of God. It was back then. It still is now. Second application, you can call it. Does God still use conflict to refine the character of his people even when they have no sin in their lives, any known sin? I cite 1 Peter 1, James 1, these passages talk about God giving us trials for our endurance, for the refining of our faith. This also comes from a loving Heavenly Father. The theme of fullness and emptiness runs throughout the story of Naomi and Ruth, and much of it is God seeking to show himself strong on their behalf. And if you know the end of the book of Ruth, you're saying, yes, that's coming. Redemption is coming. Like Naomi, and of course like Ruth, our faith must rest in the character of God. And God is only ever good to his children. Old Testament, New Testament, church age, God has our best interests at heart. I want to draw a third application from conflict, okay? Returning to the idea of military conflict for Israel. We talked about how this upheaval, the unrest, stemmed from the Israelites' disobedience of God and clinging to false idols. The idea of canonization is in the Old Testament the people of God becoming like the world. In the New Testament, we have the concept of worldliness. They're parallel. It's the same idea. Following the culture or following God. We're given a choice like them. We live in a Moabite world, don't we? We live in a Canaanite world. Will we be like Orpah, Naomi's other daughter-in-law, and return to Moab to worship? Or will we be like Ruth, following Naomi in order to serve Yahweh? To which God will we cling? That's the first theme, conflict. I want us to focus on the next theological theme. That is loyalty, loyalty. 
It's a critical theme interwoven throughout the narrative. The Lord's loyalty shines incredibly brightly through this entire book. Let's look at a couple references together, all right? Get out your copy. uh, Chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is bringing both Naomi and Ruth back together to Bethlehem in order to provide. This is God's loyalty. How about God's loyalty in the conversion of Ruth? Remember, Ruth watches Naomi go through incredible trial. And she says in verses 15 and 16, I will cling to you and I will worship your God. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I go. This is God's loyalty in saving Ruth, bringing him to himself. How about this one? If you turn to chapter 4, verses 16 through 22, This is the blessing of God preserving a lineage through Bethlehem, through Judah, ultimately to David, and then, of course, to Christ. This is a tremendous theme of loyalty through the book of Ruth. Big picture, though, I want to remind us of God's loyalty to his people. Remember what I said about Judges 2, verse 1? This is where God, again, affirms that he is faithful to his people. No matter what they do, even if they incur his judgment, he will be faithful to them. And Ruth is a complete portrait of God's care and loyalty to his people. The book of Judges is weird in one sense. Because the rest of the Bible, the word hesed or loyalty is found 245 times. It's all throughout scripture. In Judges, it's listed twice. One of them is a negative example and the other one is kind of 50-50. It could be negative. So it's weird that Judges wouldn't include that concept. You get to Ruth And at three strategic points through the book, you find this idea of hesed, loving kindness. God is reminding us of his goodness. Hesed can be translated loyal love, faithfulness, kindness, favor. You can talk to Pastor Sykes. He would be more knowledgeable about this than I would. If you have a King James Bible, the translation is often loving kindness. This is God's mercy to his people. And it can be used as just being favorable to somebody, but it's most often used in a context of covenant. That is, you've made a promise with somebody, and this is you carrying through on that promise. That is the ultimate meaning of hesed. Of course, we know that Deuteronomy chapter 7 is uh, the the forming of the Mosaic covenant. This is what God is bound to. And that's why he's faithful through Judges and through Ruth. God was loyal to keep after the children of Israel for all these years, despite their insolence. God was loyal to take care and provide, not just for the whole nation, right? But he comes down and he focuses on Naomi. He's faithful to his people individually, not just corporately. For the Lord, Hesed was not just corporate, but it was personal. And God was loyal to protect the line of Naomi and even to bless it with a coming redeemer. And we can start the Christmas meditation already. Human loyalty. Are we also called to carry about loyalty to one another? Well, I think Ruth is a great example. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. You can read quietly. I'll read aloud. Then she said, Behold, this is Naomi talking to Ruth. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. There's loyalty, loyalty to false gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, 
and there will I be buried. Those picturesque words are often used in a wedding ceremony. Where you go, I will go. Uh, Where you lodge, I will lodge. And when you die, I will be there in that same place. And I think that's appropriate because ultimately marriage is a covenant and there's a lot of loyalty being communicated there. But here Ruth is communicating her loyalty to her mother-in-law. And she's communicating it ultimately through her to God. She's saying, I will be faithful to your God all the days of my life. Loyalty is just shining forth in the example of Ruth. Is this not a picture of Christ's love to his people? How about us as we think about interacting with Christ's body in the church? Are we more loyal to somebody else? Because the truth of the matter is we will be loyal to something. Maybe it's ourselves. I believe we're called in the New Testament to be loyal to each other as we are under the loving loyalty of God. If you want to fast forward to chapters 2 and 3, you will observe Boaz's loyalty, right? Boaz is the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. And Boaz is a wealthy man. He's a substantial man. We read about this. The word used for him is used of Gideon. Of course, in Gideon, it's a military context. But with Boaz, it's that he's, he's a successful businessman. Okay, he's with it. Boaz is a wonderful example of faithfulness because he carries out his responsibility to Ruth by claiming her, by buying her back. The truth of the matter is, our loyalty as sinners is often frail because we have the rebellion of sin inside of us. And to try to just fix this on our own is as foolish as trying to fix leukemia by by giving one blood transfusion from one arm to the other. This problem is within us. We need God's grace. We need his love And we need Christ's power in order to show real loyalty in response to God. Okay, so we have conflict. We have loyalty. Let's finish with the theme of providence. The theme of providence. One of the things I love about the story of Ruth is that it it reveals, rather, God's involvement in the world at a mundane level. I like what Kevin Bowder, listen to this, of Central Seminary says. He says, most of God's working in the world is not miraculous, It is in the ordinary and mundane. That is most of what God is doing in the world. It's through the mundane operations of life. Something as simple as a famine or rainfall. What could be more natural than rain? That comes from the hand of God, and it's for a purpose. This is providence at work. In what ways is God at work in Ruth behind the scenes? Well, first, to move his people to where he wanted them, through feast and famine. He took care of Naomi. Ironically, they had to leave Bethlehem, which is the place of bread, right? The house of bread in order to find bread because Bethlehem was empty. That's irony. They eventually come back to Bethlehem and find prosperity again. Second, how about this one? The Lord keeps Boaz single through all these years in order to finally save and minister to Ruth. Boaz was successful. Who knows? He may have been married before. We don't know that. The narrator doesn't tell us. But I think God probably just protected Boaz all those years to keep him available to save Ruth. Third, God worked in the budding romance of Ruth and Boaz in order to procure that line, that lineage. I want us to note this about about providence. God's providence, we see this in Ruth, always moves toward redemption. Always moves toward redemption. Individually, Naomi. Corporate, Israel. He's doing this. This is the arc of scripture, leading us to a Christological realization of redemption. That just means that the book of Ruth is just foreshadowing what Christ is going to do. The sub-theme of redemption is rich, rich in the book of Ruth. Turn to chapter 4, 
very end, verses 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Now, this was the custom, and this is going to be the explaining of the kinsman redeemer to some degree. This was the custom in former times of Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So, the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed a sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders, excuse me, and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. This is Boaz at work fulfilling the kinsman redeemer uh, project. If you were to turn to Leviticus chapter 25, part of the code, you will see God making promises for anyone, any woman who had become widowed, lost her husband. She was given an opportunity to, again, have money, have a security net, because this was a patriarchal society. If a woman lost her husband, she was in trouble. God was looking out for them in Leviticus 25. Boaz knows this law in the Old Testament, and he's ready to apply it to his situation. And he calls upon the the elders, the officials of Bethlehem. He says, look at this. I'm fulfilling God's word. I am protecting Ruth and Naomi, and I'm preserving their line down through uh, the ages. The kinsman redeemer is Boaz. And he prefigures the type of way, catch this, in which Jesus Christ will redeem humanity from the curse of sin. Listen to some of these parallels. Think about Christ. Christ fulfills the law in obedience. He was perfectly obedient to the code, to his father in spirit and in action. Boaz carefully followed the Old Testament policy and secured Ruth. How about this one? Christ was made full flesh in order to be our kinsman. He's related to us through humanity. Boaz was related to Ruth through Elimelech. I'm sorry, through Naomi, uh, through Elimelech. Christ went outside of the camp, rejected by the Jews, and he redeemed the Gentiles. That's where we are right now. Christ redeemed the Gentiles in order to ultimately save Israel. Well, Boaz brought in Ruth, who was a Gentile, in order to save Naomi, who was a Jew. All these parallels. Christ was the offspring of Bethlehem, Judah, Micah 5, 2, out of you shall come, even though you were small. And Boaz and Ruth's child, Obed, was the offspring of through Bethlehem, giving rise to Jesse and David. Boaz and Ruth have a child named Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. This is the line that God was preserving. All these are acts of providence. And of course, if we think about Bethlehem, where this whole, the big part of this narrative takes place, it's, a, it's sort of a Christmas meditation, isn't it? I know Thanksgiving is this week, but right after that, you know how quickly the Christmas season comes upon us. This is one way we can meditate on God's providence through the Christmas story. God was working in ages past to preserve this family line in order to secure David and then ultimately to secure Jesus Christ through Joseph. What a meditation we have. Listen to Goslinger's review of how Boaz is like Christ. It's really brief. Like Boaz, Christ preserves our name from oblivion and ensures for us a place to call home. That's what Boaz did for Ruth. He he prevented her name from being obscured. 
for her dying alone. And he says, come with me. And that's what Christ does to us. God used Boaz to preserve Naomi's name from oblivion and forever ensured an incredible legacy of covenantal blessing and love. So how do we we respond to this last theological lesson, providence? Well, here are my thoughts. Understand and accept God's hand in the regular and mundane of life. He is working towards a glorious redemption. If you were to ask Naomi or Ruth or even Boaz in the middle of this narrative, what is God doing? They would not have had a clear answer. They weren't able to discern that until it was all said and done. Likewise, you and I don't know what God is doing in the moment, but we have to trust the grand plan of what he's doing. Remember Bowder's quote, God is at work in the mundane and the regular. That's most of his working, right? And so we ought to accept the good providence of the Lord. In response to God's own commitment to us in Christ, we ought to respond with rededicated loyalty to him. Like Boaz was willing to fulfill Leviticus 25 and buy back Ruth to save her, like Christ saves us, we ought to follow God's provision for us. There's so many wonderful themes here, and I think it's appropriate that we finish with providence because it sets us up for the Christmas season, right? God preserving this line through Bethlehem where Jesus will end up being born. I want to finish with two great quotes. One is from Hudson Taylor, and one is from Naomi at the end of the book. All right, here's what Hudson Taylor says. But so it is that God leads. His hand is on the helm. We are being guided even when we feel it least. The closed door is as much his providence as the open one, and equally for our good and the accomplishment of his great own ends. And one learns at last that it is not what we set ourselves to do that really tells the blessing so much as what he is doing through us when we least expect it, if only we are abiding in fellowship with him. Now listen to Naomi, chapter 2. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. Praise the Lord today. He has not left us without a redeemer. We have a redeemer who's coming. We celebrate in just about a month. Let me pray and then.